My name is Harrison Wheeler, and this is Technically Speaking. This show is produced in collaboration with Studio Pod Media. For information on our episodes, articles, and professional community, head to technicallyspeakinghw.com today. Hey everybody, my name is Harrison Wheeler, host of Technically Speaking, and today I have Eva Penzi Moog, author of Design for Safety. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, yeah. So your work focuses on making tech safer by prioritizing the most vulnerable. Maybe kind of take us through a little bit of that and maybe give folks a brief introduction about yourself. Yeah, sure. So my work, as you said, focuses on protecting the most vulnerable among our users, specifically thinking in the terms of interpersonal harm. So especially domestic violence is the big one, but really it can be any type of place where there's an interpersonal relationship where people can weaponize tech for different forms of abuse. So domestic violence is the big one, but there's also things like child abuse, usually with over surveillance. And then that also comes into play with employers using invasive surveillance. So there's lots of other sort of types of relationships where this can play into, but domestic violence is definitely the big one. And it's definitely not a new issue, but it's kind of something that we're only just starting to talk about. Maybe give folks a little bit of a a background about yourself. Obviously, you're an author, you're a principal designer. Maybe kind of take us sort of through your journey to get to where you are today and why you're so passionate about safety and what that means. Yeah, for sure. So Before I joined tech, I had a short career in nonprofit, and I was a volunteer rape crisis counselor, and I learned a lot about domestic violence through the training that I did to do that. And then I ended up doing domestic violence education at the nonprofit that I was working at after I got that certification. And then I started doing it for like union groups and just anyone, any sort of group who wanted it. So I got really, really sort of into the domestic violence education space and just learning all about it and learning how to talk about it. And then... I decided to make the career switch into tech. I focus on UX as well as some front end. And I started seeing these ways that technology is facilitating domestic violence. And I looked all around and I was looking for like a person or a group that I could volunteer with or lend support to, and I couldn't find them. So I decided to start trying to work on this issue myself. And that's kind of how it got started. Was this sort of reoccurring themes that you started to see in terms of where that tech sort of made the connection there? Yeah, definitely. This was in maybe like 2017. There was a lot of emerging stuff happening, especially with IoT devices. There had been some very early reporting on how this was becoming a thing that only really like domestic violence advocates and people who worked at shelters knew about. Obviously, the people who were experiencing it also knew about it. But I think there were a couple of reports about this new issue, like trying to raise the alarm bell. And I read one of those articles and was like, whoa. And then I started really looking for it in my own work, which is nothing so exciting as IoT. I do software design, but I still found ways like I was working on a a sort of portal for big apartment buildings to sort of manage between the tenant and the managers of the building to do things like manage your list of registered guests, like put in a service request, things like that. And was just thinking about how that could be designed more safely for someone who was in a stalking situation and maybe had someone that 
not only wasn't on their list of registered guests, but actually like I have this person who cannot be let in under any circumstances. And you should tell me if they try to get in so that I can take whatever action I want to take to try to keep myself safe. And just how there wasn't a feature for that type of thing. So I started thinking about it even in, I guess, like less exciting, more mundane ways and sort of seeing these ways that our tech is both enabling the abuse, but also falls short of the potential to like really help people who are in these dangerous situations. Was there any sort of conversations and discussions around this before you started really digging in deep into it and taking sort of that discerning eye to it? Yeah, I don't want to say there weren't discussions, but if there were, I couldn't find them in any sort of public way. I did a ton of research because I was so sure there was a group already working on this. There's definitely been, especially in the domestic violence advocacy space, there have been people talking about this for sure and like helping each other, different people who work at shelters and advocates and lawyers, um, social workers, educating each other on this topic and sharing resources. But I don't think there was much that was getting out to folks in tech. And that's definitely my like focus is other people who work in tech to understand what this is. And I definitely, I struggled to find any resources for someone like me who was like, hey, I care about this. I'm not quite sure what to do about it. So that's been my big goal is to kind of create those resources. Yeah. Well, look, we're going to kind of switch gears and take a pause real quick before we get into sort of the meat of the show. I wanted to do a few icebreakers with you. And here's a fun fact. Are you originally from Wisconsin? I am. I'm from Wisconsin. I was born and raised in Milwaukee. Me too. What? <laughs> really? That's awesome. Yeah. Small world. Yeah. 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 I have a tattoo. So, um, can't really see it, obviously, in the sweater, but I have a Wisconsin tattoo. Very proud Wisconsinite. Are you into the Brewers, the Packers, Bucks? Is that is that your thing? Um, Packers, for sure. Aaron Rodgers breaks my heart a little bit. <sighs> I know. Yeah. This but um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I went to University of Wisconsin. So, you know, the Badgers have a place in my heart as well. Nice. 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 So I I went to Iowa. Oh, nice. So, but we're still in the Big Ten family. Yeah, totally. So that's awesome. And you're you're currently in Chicago. I used to live in Chicago as well. So we've got a few connections there, which is pretty, pretty fun. So what's something that you're super obsessed with, right? At the moment? I know Wisconsin definitely has a winter culture that is not present in California, which I do get a little bit nostalgic about. Is there something that you're like really into right now? Uh, you know, I wish I could. There's no like outdoor winter. Chicago is not a great place for it. There's not a lot of hills. Usually when there's like my family up in the Milwaukee area, there's like nice snow. Um, here it's usually like a freezing rain because it's just a little bit warmer. It was voted one of the most miserable cities for weather. So um, <laughs> I do love Chicago a lot, but not great in the winter. But I did just start a fellowship about tech policy through the Aspen Institute, that has been a really great thing to do in the winter when I'm not doing too much of anything else anyway. So that's what I'm, to answer your question, like obsessed with at the moment. It's like really fast. I've never learned anything about policy or government outside of like high school um, civics class. So it's been really interesting to learn from people who have actually made policy and worked in government to learn like how this actually works. It's it's taught me that all the hot takes I see on Twitter are just so overly simplified. And even things like the filibuster, which I'm like, yeah, we need to get rid of that. And then this guy talked all about some of the reasons why it's actually a good thing. And I'm, oh, this is, this is so complicated. I don't know where I stand anymore. So that's been the sort of thing that I'm obsessed with at the moment. Are you seeing sort of like a potential tech angle into policy as well? 
Definitely. This fellowship is for people who work in tech, who want to learn about policy to, to try to influence tech policy, which is obviously very important emerging space. I do see a lot. I think I'm very interested in how companies influence policy. So the policies that like Facebook has about content moderation, like those have huge implications and almost, well, I, I don't know. I don't want to say like more influence than a government policy, but very, very influential, you know, into millions of people who use it. And then they influence other products. And there's just a lot of interesting stuff going on. And most of these big companies have whole like policy teams about their own internal policies. So I'm really interested in that and also interested in government, although I don't think I'd want to work in government. It seems very intense. Yeah, there's a lot there. But I think what's really interesting about that in the same manner of volunteering in domestic violence sort of groups, you sort of start to bridge where tech can play a role into that. And on top of that, you're also being able to kind of have those discussions with people that work in tech so they have a better understanding of what those things mean in terms of the safety for the people that we're designing for. So you almost kind of see another end of this of like, hey, look, now let's talk about public policy, how we can bring in tech. And as you mentioned before, I think we're starting to see, or at least as you mentioned, there's a lot of governments that are starting to be a bit more focused on policy centered around tech, specifically, I know specifically around privacy, but I think we could probably have an extension of that as well. So that's that's really awesome. What's up, everybody? It's Harrison again. I'm sure if you haven't heard by now, I just released the Technically Speaking Product Design Glossary. It's 118 need-to-know terms centered around the ins and out of user experience design. The best part about it is that it's a free download. Head on over to technicallyspeakinghw.com or our Instagram for more information. So what's something outside of work that plays a big influence in your life? I thought a lot about this question and I apologize if this makes you or like any of the listeners uncomfortable, but there's really only one answer I can give and it'd be really dishonest to try to dig at something else. But the answer to this question about the biggest thing that's influencing my life outside of work and this work that I'm doing and just my nine to five is infertility and related treatment. We started that in March of 2020. So it's been like right along with the pandemic and IVF is really demanding and intense emotionally and physically. And, but there's also so much stigma around it and talking about it. So I have to like take every opportunity I can to be like, this is really common. Like one in eight couples go through this and most people just never talk about it. And it's absolutely horrible. I would love to have a culture where we can talk more openly about it and not just pretend that like things are okay when you're going through this thing that most people who go through it, at least in the way I'm going through it, where it's been like a very long journey. It's like one of the most difficult things that a lot of people go through in their entire lives. So yeah, taking this chance to be like, Let's normalize um, being open about this. And, you know, obviously on the emotional, so it's also a huge investment in time and money as well. It's not cheap. And so that does require a lot. (laughs) Yeah. We're so lucky. Illinois randomly has amazing mandated coverage. It's still been expensive, but like it's been within reach. Whereas, yeah, for most people in most states, it's like take out a mortgage, people refinancing and going tens of thousands of dollars into debt just for the chance of having. Yeah. And it's not guaranteed. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) You get it. Yeah. It's a chance. People think, oh, you're doing IVF. And they say like, that's so exciting. And I'm like, no, it's not (laughs) like it's just a chance. It might not work. There are no guarantees. 
We're going to get into this a little bit later, but there's a lot of just toxic positivity around things <laughs> that are very traumatic. Yes. And I would even say from an industry perspective, I just feel like there's almost way too much optimism and happy path in a lot of the things that folks are shipping to the market in terms of whatever this hero story arc is around a product manager or a designer. This sounds like this is going to be a pretty real discussion that we have. Yeah, toxic positivity in this space and in like the tech space, definitely relevant. And I, my thought is just that people don't want to engage with uncomfortable topics, especially if they don't happen to already know about it. So instead of asking questions and being curious, it's more like, oh, I'm just going to say like, oh, that's actually a great thing or like, sounds cool or whatever. Um, and not, not really engage with the difficult thing, which I think I see that a lot in these different spaces. Well, talking about engaging with the difficult thing, you wrote this book, Design for Safety. How did that all come about? Is this sort of like, was the book a discovery process for you? Or was this sort of a thing that was like, you know, I need to get something out there. I need to see what the reaction is. The industry needs it. Maybe kind of take us through that. So like I was saying earlier, when I kind of realized that this was a problem and that I wanted to like try to do some work on it. First thing that I started off doing was a conference talk called Designing Against Domestic Violence. This is obviously in the before times. I spoke at a lot of different conferences. It was a pretty well-received talk, I think. But even when I had an entire hour, which was rare, it was usually like 20 or 30, maybe 40 minutes, there was so much content that I could, just couldn't fit into that talk and that I cut out. And then every week I was, I have all these Google alerts set up for different terms and I'm looking at all these different publications. And I just every week was finding more things that I wanted to add in. And I was also refining my sort of like, what do we do about this process, which I call the process for inclusive safety. And that was becoming more and more robust, but I just couldn't fit all of the things that I wanted to say about that into the talk. So then when the pandemic happened, conferences, a bunch of ones that I was going to speak at just got canceled. We like didn't figure out online conferences right away. And it was like, this would be a great time to write a book because conferences aren't happening. And I have way, way more that I want to say about this topic than can fit in even an hour long talk anymore. So yeah. And also I was like, this could reach a bigger audience and I can get in all the content I want. So that was kind of the initial motivation for writing a book. Well, well, to kick off sort of the idea of the book, it has the premise that people in technology will cause harm, just like anything else. And that's a tough pill to swallow for many people because, again, there's just so much thought around sort of what the happy path is, thinking about creating value for sort of the common denominator. Maybe kind of take us through why that's the angle to start with. I'm so glad that you're calling this out as a thing. Because, yeah, we have the happy path. And then I feel like the flip side to the happy path is the edge case where we kind of push things aside. And, you know, there are real edge cases. But I think I have seen times where people will push something aside that, again, is like a little too difficult to really engage with for them in that moment. And say, like, we don't have to worry about that. That's an edge case without doing research to validate that that's true. And without maybe thinking critically about, like, even if it is rare, does that mean that we don't owe anything to those users? So that's something I think about a lot. And like I said earlier, this stuff is not fun to talk about. And especially at work, I think the overwhelming feeling that people have and that iPad bringing this stuff up is just being feeling awkward. Like, it's very, very awkward to be like, um, but like, what about domestic violence? But I do think obviously that we need to be talking about it. And something that 
I'm really proud about with the process that I created is that if you use it, like you bring it up once, say like, I want to implement this process, go through the awkward part. But then if you implement it, it's just always there. Like whenever you're starting a new product or feature, you have the relevant steps of the process, you put those into your roadmap. And then it's just like there as a thing you do and you don't have to keep bringing it up over and over again. So that's something that I'm really happy with about how the process works that I think is a way that we can kind of like push past a little bit, just the discussions of happy paths and edge cases and deal with the discomfort of things that we would rather not think about. I think that's extremely interesting, right? Because it's expanding sort of the process. I will say that I think designers have a lot to think about. I think as we become more conscious about our process and as we think about sort of the consequences that it may have for people, what happens to folks that are like, well, you know, I already have too much or I don't have enough time. What do you say to that? What do you say to product managers or engineer folks that may push back on this? The main thing I say is this isn't going to actually take that much time. The sort of little graphic that I have in the book of the process has little time estimates. And it doesn't have to be that much, especially if you're thinking it's spread out amongst like several weeks or even months, depending on how big of the product or feature is that you're working on. It can be like a few hours a week that you're spending brainstorming and then thinking about solutions to the the issues you identified in the brainstorm and doing these different activities isn't actually that much time. So that's the first thing I say. And one of my pieces of advice is for people who are trying to implement this in their workplaces is to like provide those time estimates to your stakeholder because it's a lot easier for them to say yes if they're like, oh, this is going to be 22 hours spread out over the next two months. Fine. Um, As opposed to just like, we're really passionate about this thing and we want to start thinking about it. We don't know how much time it's going to take, but it's really important. I understand why some stakeholders who are under so much pressure are like, no, I can't just give you like carte blanche to like think about this stuff whenever you want. And I also don't think, like you said, designers have a lot to think about. That's so real. And that's part of the reason I initially started making what became the process is because I was so overwhelmed with all the different things that I was trying to think about, not just interpersonal harm and violence that I think about all the time, but there's other things we want to be thinking about. Like, are we going to be doing someone injustice with the way we collect data? Is there bias in how we're thinking? Like, there's just so many different things, but you can't think about that stuff 24 seven. Sometimes you have to sit down and do your wireframe. So like, I want there to be my sort of goal is that there are like, you give yourself specific time to like dedicate all of your energy to thinking about these different things, rather than always trying to think about it and always being vaguely stressed out because you know that you're not thinking about it deeply enough. And the process for inclusive safety is, is meant to be a little more expansive than just thinking about interpersonal harm. Like a lot of people come up with, especially data harms I've noticed is the big one that people will be, oh, actually like, the way that we're collecting this, we could inadvertently like out a trans person and we don't want to do that. And that just by the way that the software is designed and that wouldn't involve a bad actor or abuser, but you can kind of like identify these different things with the process. And I think that's really important to have specific time set aside to think about all of the things. Right. I like the way that's framed because it's not necessarily always a bad actor. And a lot of times when we think about abuse, we always only think about the bad actor, but it could be the platform enabling Yeah. Even just by itself inadvertently. I don't want you to divulge too much because obviously you've got the book, but are there sort of like three common violations that you see quite a bit? Three common violations. There are so many different products. There are so many differences, but something that I see a lot of is issues with location and people not thinking through, like, it's not like we're just giving out this person's address. 
but there might be other things that you're revealing about them that someone who is hellbent on figuring out like where they've moved to or where they live or their shopping habits is going to be able to get a lot of use from. And the example in the book that I give is about Strava, the fitness app, where it would tag people who are sort of like exercising with you for a certain amount of time. So maybe you're jogging and someone else is jogging like half a block behind you for three blocks. It tags them as having made an appearance. And then you're able to see their entire route, which is a lot of location information. And you can probably figure out where they live. So it's things like that, that it's just a little more insidious, I think, than people think about. The other big one is issues with shared accounts that I see where people don't necessarily think through like what that really means. Are we just modifying like a regular account and letting multiple people into it? Are we giving them separate passwords? Like it gets really, really thorny. And that's something that I think feels also like kind of mundane, but is something that a lot of people are weaponizing in order to find information on people who maybe don't know that they have access to all of this information about them. Yeah, on that first one, the first thing, I mean, Strava probably had the precedence before, but right now is the the AirPod or the, the AirPod trackers. What do they call those? Things? Yeah, the Air ta- uh, Air tags. Yeah, Air tags. There we go. <laughs> those have been extremely problematic, at least out here. I know a few folks have been followed. Their homes have been broken into, and it's it's interesting because like you're not hearing anything from Apple about. It. Yeah. Oh, I, I'm actually working on a long blog post about Air tags because I have a lot to say about them. They're awful. Yeah. Apple kind of tried to their credit. But I don't think they tried very hard. It doesn't seem like they actually work with domestic violence groups, which is sad because I know in the past that they have done a really good job of partnering with groups to understand these sorts of things. And they have the whole point of this blog I'm writing is that like the safety measures that they have do kind of work. People find them and are like, oh my God, there's an air tag stuck to the back of my car behind my driver's license or like in my backpack or whatever. And people find them, but then well, not everyone finds them all the time. Like you said, sometimes people's cars get stolen, houses get broken into, but it it seems like the straight up stalking, there are a lot of cases where the sort of security measures have worked kind of. And then it, the problem is that it's then just like this huge burden on the victim to like keep themselves safe and to like get some tiny measure of justice or accountability for the person who did that usually requires them to not actually mess with the air tag until the police can get involved. Apple has made statements that like, if you feel unsafe, like call the police. And that's a really big assumption that everyone can just call the police and that that's going to be safe for people, that people want to do that. There are lots of different groups who have very good reasons for not wanting to engage with law enforcement. So saying like, just call the cops is just this really lazy, awful lazy. solution. <laughs> so yeah, there's lots of issues there. We could probably spend an hour talking about air tags. <laughs> Yeah, and I'd even say, too, if it comes to even stolen property, even if the police would show up for that. So now you've got this burden that's going to pretty much, it's going to lay on you. It's going to rest on that member. I think that's actually a really great case that I'm looking forward to that. Right. Another big assumption. <laughs> so, so look, moving into 2022, there's a lot going on. We're talking about metaverses, NFTs, crypto, all the things. Your book came out in August. (laughs) And so there's just a lot of change that's starting to happen. Do you have any sort of perspective on maybe how safety might apply to those? Are there any sort of standout things that at least come to concern with you that you're even kind of thinking about now? Yeah, there definitely are. There's not a ton of strictly interpersonal harm, people weaponizing, at least not that I've been able to identify, although I haven't (laughs) 
haven't spent the time going through the process for these different things that I don't really work within. But I am definitely like the main thing that I think I'm worried about with all of these things. And I think we definitely see this with NFTs is that the sort of like reproducing of injustices that tech is just doing all the time. Like we have these injustices that exist out in the world and then our tech just reproduces them unless we're really, really, really careful and really intentional about not reproducing those harms. Like I see people on Twitter all the time talking about being an artist and their art has been like stolen essentially through NFTs. I don't understand 100% about how it works, but I know a lot of people kind of defend NFTs. It's like, I want to support artists. And it, it doesn't seem to me like the artists are being supported by this. And a lot of them are having their work stolen. The one thing that I want to say about the metaverse is that something that I heard about recently in the fellowship that I'm in was someone discussing the sort of different issues with VR and the sort of new types of data that it can collect on us. Facebook and lots of big companies have these enormous profiles on all their users with all this information about them and how with VR, you might be able to do things like map out um, body gestures and do things like understand if you have a disability, if you have an injury based on like the way that you're moving your body. And that was that was like so terrifying. And obviously, I think their goal would be to monetize that. But I also am just thinking of how harmful a lot of targeted advertising already is, and how that type of information could be used in really nefarious ways. So that's definitely something that I'm thinking about. Yeah, it's funny. The NFT space, to your earlier comment, I don't know if anybody understands it. So I just want to add on to that. <laughs> I, I might bite my words here in a few, but I think the point that you're also getting to is the fact that on every single one of these platforms, people are trying to monetize. And so now you're adding value potentially to harm. And when people don't understand it, you know they're going to go for the money. <laughs> and so I think like for me, that's one of the big sort of like caution signs that pops up for me. Absolutely. Especially since there's no governing body, there's no regulations, there's no laws. And again, this is just people that I see on Twitter, but talking about they bought an NFT and then it was stolen in some way or someone scammed them and was able to like access their account and steal their NFTs and how they basically have no recourse. That's really bad. And then that, again, just like gets back to like reproducing injustices that exist out in the world where people who already don't have strong institutional support when things like this happen to them are just kind of like having these other harms happen to them in, in the tech space. Well, look, I want to kind of shift gears. I know you also run the Inclusive Safety Project. So Maybe give the listeners a little bit of an idea of what that is, how they can contribute, how they can participate. So you can find more at inclusivesafety.com. And it's just the sort of project I run that gets at like all the different types of work around designing for safety and preventing tech-facilitated domestic violence and other interpersonal harm. There's a really great resources page on there for people who want to like do some reading or watch some videos about the sort of different things that are in the book or like related groups or people just to follow on Twitter if you're interested in this kind of stuff. But there's also some information on there about joining the project as a conference speaker. I know conferences are still all over the place, but I did even before the pandemic was realizing that the idea of trying to have this be like a one woman show where I like travel the world and give this talk is just not not going to scale, so to speak, if I actually want to 
educate the whole tech world about this topic. So people can do my conference talk, basically like adapt it for their own culture and context um, and do it in their country and get support from me on that. And then there's also workshops that I do on this topic that I've done for some different companies um, internally. So you can hire me to work with your design teams to learn about this topic. And then there's also, well, it's basically like get in touch with me, but there's a little bit of information about on curriculum if you have like a boot camp or some type of educational program you want, I would love for people to just be educated about this stuff from the get go. So I'm really interested in working with different educational spaces to implement curriculum on this topic. So that's all on the website and all sort of different things happening through the project. And then how can folks get in contact with you and how can they access your book and all of that? InclusiveSafety.com has a contact form, so people can always use that. I am on Twitter as E. Penzimoog, not posting as much there for mental health reasons, but I'm definitely there and still posting a bit about the latest in tech-facilitated domestic violence news. You can find my book at abookapart.com. It's not on Amazon or other places. Best to just get it right from the publisher, which is A Book Apart, so you can get it there. Awesome. And is there anything that you want to leave with the listeners, a piece of advice? Yeah. The one piece of advice that I think is really important is if you care about this or any other justice ethical issue within tech and you're trying to make some type of change at your company is to find at least one other person who feels the same way and to have a team and just to not go it alone because you're just going to burn out much quicker. So if you can find even one ally in your space to sort of help you with this work, it's going to be a lot more manageable. Well, thank you so much, Eva, for coming on the show. This was an amazing talk. Looking forward to diving in a lot deeper into your work and obviously getting more folks involved because I think this is a very important topic, especially as we start to have more expansive discussions around what design ethics means. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. This was was really fun. 